We could find life in the lakes of Titan. There may well be something that looks like life. But I'm almost 90. They won't find life in my lifetime. But in yours, certainly. What would be ambitious would be to land on Europa, drill through the ice underground, and see what's underneath. What will be there? I'm not too sure. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh, the great Sir Patrick Moore. Yes, dude. What a legend. I quite like that last sentence. What will be there? I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure. Is anyone (laughs) sure? Although he always said that he was sure that there's life out there, that we can't be the only ones. Hmm. Good old Patrick. Do you know what? Whose birthday it is today? Go on. George Driver, Pinky Nelson. Ah, Pinkster. Pinky. So, born on July the 13th, 1950. I know. It's Friday the 13th. I'm not quite sure I like this. But I'm not a superstitious man. you are not one of those types. In fact, you once told me that you actively liked doing stuff that was meant deemed unlucky, just to prove it wasn't. No, true. Uh, But do you know know what the exception to all that is with scientists? Rocket launches. That's what I've discovered. Mm. I've discovered that no matter how great a scientist or engineer you are, you still get superstitious when it comes to rocket launches because they're so stressful. In fact, I have an interview that I did at the CSG that proves it. That will be in next week's episode when we cover my trip to the European Space Centre. Matt, do you know who's the most superstitious? Is it Stevie Wonder? You've ruined my gag. Ah, yes. I love it. I'm kind of proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, yes. George, George Pinky Nelson. American physicist, astronomer, science educator, and former NASA astronaut. He flew on Challenger in 1984, Mm. Columbia in 1986, and Discovery in 1988. So he had a pretty full set of space shuttles under his belt there. That's a nice run in four years, isn't it? Yeah, and the Discovery flight was the first flight after the Challenger accident. So he's also Mm. got nerves of steel. Yeah, that would be squeaky bum time, wouldn't it? I like the fact also that he was the photographer in the prime chase plane on John Young's epic first space shuttle flight, STS-1. Jeez. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. So this guy, he's, he's pretty cool. He's logged 411 hours in space with 10 hours of EVA. And, oh. uh, yeah, he's got a couple of degrees, a doctor and all those kind of things, from uh, mainly from the University of Washington. And... He now directs the Science, Mathematics and Technology Education Programme at the Western Washington University in Bellingham, which is pretty... Oh. Imagine, having, imagine having old Pinky Nelson as your, uh, one of your lecturers. It'd be so cool. Imagine that. Yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't skip those, could you? No, absolutely not. So happy birthday, George Nelson. Happy birthday, Pinky. Good old, good old Pinky. Matt, we've got another birthday. Yeah, yeah. No, I, know, I noticed on Twitter. Lauren... Grush of space journalism fame. Happy 30th. Uh, Matt, now you know my new favourite feature of the show is Word of the Week. Word of the Week. Well, it's Space Word of the Week, isn't it? Um, space Word of the Week. Can you tell us what we got? Autophage. Oof. Biologists amongst uh, amongst our listeners, of which there are many, I'm sure, mm. will will, yeah. will will know about autophage because it's a, it's a sort of act of self cannibalization. So mm. yeah, yeah. So it's when you eat yourself, basically. Which there are actually <laughs> that's pretty horrible. Don't don't look up autophage outside of the realm of rocketry because it yes, is actually please. it's a pretty grim subject. Autosarcophagy. <laughs> NSFW. Yeah, so don't do it. But <laughs> an autophage is a rocket that eats itself. Uh-huh. So instead of having massive, great big fuel tanks carrying fuel, why mm. not make the fuel tanks themselves, the whole rocket outer casing and everything, out of the fuel? Whoa. Now, the, and the reason why I, I sort of stumbled upon this was because 
when I posted about uh, the Europeans who are just about to uh, do a test with their P120C, the largest monolithic booster of all time, mm. uh, someone tweeted that, that uh, of course, solid propellant was dead and that's why Elon Musk doesn't use it. Now, I, I think there's a, a couple of things wrong with that. I think the reason why Elon Musk doesn't use it is... I don't think he's a particular believer in solid propellants, but that might be down to the fact that to make solid propellants, you have to build a huge factory and have loads of expertise, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's not. And an... also, that wouldn't be great for reusable rockets, would it? Well, that's the other thing that the solid rocket boosters on the space shuttle were reused. So they used to parachute down oh. and then they were sort of cleaned out and refilled with uh, solid propellant. But I think that ended up being more costly than just building them from scratch. Another reason why the space shuttle was a bit of a disaster. It was. Even though it's a, the greatest machine ever built, but 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 yeah, not not cheap. It wasn't cheap. But autophage what? Uh, Wait, wait a minute, Matt. Mm-hmm. Greater than the Sega Mega Drive. Um because, you know, steady steady on. Yeah, I never had a Sega Mega Drive. My I just had the Atari. Yeah, sorry. It's all right. You can come round, we'll play Altered Beast. Oh, yes. Well, no, I did play Altered Beast a lot. Quality. But, no, no, the Autophage motor, Jamie, it's, it, there's been loads of uh, times that it's come up. So there's patents going back to as far as the 1930s. Really? Yeah, and 1960s, 70s and 80s. It's all, there's always been, it's always been around, so this idea. But recently, a team of engineers from Scotland... Hey, mm. Scotland and the Ukraine have developed what they call an autophage rocket. I, I know. I think they're the first people to ever get it to actually fire, though, Jamie. <laughs> We're definitely getting complaints after this show. <laughs> I mean, uh. now, obviously, it's not a very good choice for human spaceflight because you don't want to be on a rocket that's eating itself. I wouldn't have mm. thought. Um No. But it's kind of better than reusable because you're kind of using it all up and you don't have to refurbish it. So for small rocket launches, it might be really cool. So this new this new rocket that the Scots have uh, invented is like a propellant rod that's comp- comprised of a solid fuel on the outside. Mm. So you've got this polypropylene fuel, uh, a bit like a drain pipe, I suppose. And on the inside, you've got the oxidizer, which is ammonium perchlorate, which is the same as they use in the um, ESA boosters in the Ariane Avio, the P120C, for example. I think they mix it with ammonium nitrate as well because it burns too much and ruins the metal with its oxidization and stuff. So they've got this mix. Mm. Anyway, um, that, that rod is kind of forced into a burning hot motor. And as it goes in, it's instantly turned into gas. And then the gases move through the rocket combustion chamber and actually start uh, creating thrust. And as the rocket motor sort of slowly makes its way up the pipe, burning the actual rocket casing as it goes. Whoa. So the, but the great thing about that is that as you vary how much you push this rod of fuel or the you know the actual booster itself into the engine if you vary the speed you can throttle the engine up and down which is which is another complaint against solid propellants is that you can't throttle it well actually this method you actually can that is very cool so it, here's a quote we could we could size the launch vehicles to match our small satellites and offer more rapid and more targeted access to space says Dr. Patrick Harnkes of the University Ooh. of Glasgow. See, I, I read that as Harkness, which, of course, is a bit of a sort of Doctor Who reference, but Dr. It Patrick Harnkes. Well, we should try and get him on. Yeah, no, absolutely. You can have that rocket nozzle on a, on a gimbal, or you could have steering vanes, and I've not seen this before. So you have vanes that are actually in the rocket. Gas is coming out. You can have vanes actually in that rocket. And that's vanes, V-A-N-E. Yeah, not... Not, not blood vanes, because that would be weird. In the jet itself, you could have these steering vanes, and that's how the V2s used to do it. Obviously, they, they're, they're a little bit prone to being damaged by the massive heat. But apparently you can get more things like rotational force and, than you can from a, a gimbal engine. I like that word, gimbal. Gimbal. Or you could have nitrogen manoeuvring thrusters if you've got small payloads. So 
it all looks quite feasible. I mean, they're miles away. But oh, blimey, what what a word. What autophage. Yeah, I know. But what, what a concept as well. Really quite like it. Incredible stuff. So if you want to read more about that, uh, there's a paper titled Autophage Engines Towards a Throttleable Solid Motor. And it's published in the Journal of Spacecraft and Rockets. I tell you what, if you're not already reading that, I mean, what are you doing with your life? The Journal of Spacecraft and Rockets. What are you, on Instagram? Oh, good grief. Get a life. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you what caused a controversy during the... I I I don't really want to talk about the football, but um, Um, I think it was was Martin Keown during one of the England football matches said, well, if you're reading a book now, then you should get a life. (laughs) What? And loads of people were moaning on, on Twitter. And I'm just thinking, come on. It's just football punditry where you've got to sit there coming up with inane comments after inane yeah. comments. And that's just one of them that he's kind of just come from nowhere and really shouldn't be taken too seriously. No. It's... What an idiot, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, uh, anyway, yeah. talking a solid... Yeah. Talking of solid rocket boosters, anyway, mm. uh, ESA are just about to test the P120C. Now, that was, was supposed to happen when I was out there, but uh, they delayed it, but we went anyway. Uh, and uh, so that's just about to happen. It may be happening today, I don't know, but there was p- beautiful pictures going down the train tracks that I was standing on but a fortnight ago. Um, mm. Yeah, and they've also built a production line in Bordeaux for the nozzles. Nice. The great thing about that is that the, where they're building these nozzles in Bordeaux has the most powerful robot ever built. And it can and this robot can hold up these nozzles and they weigh two tons. So this robot's pretty strong. He's like the Terminator. Is it like Pacific Rim? I think, <laughs> oh, that'd be so cool, wouldn't I'd it? I'd love to be inside that. Here's a cool one. Did you see the pictures, Jamie, of Mr. Stephen? No. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, my God. So, Mr. Stephen, as as our listeners will know, is the SpaceX boat that goes out to try and catch the Falcon 9 fairings. Mm. Um, it's hilarious. It's hilarious. They've basically made the net, well, the sort of boom arms that hold this massive net, they've made mm. them loads, loads bigger. Just in case. So thirty meters going out. It it just looks it just looks totally ridiculous. I can't believe there's a boat that runs around desperately trying to catch the fairings as they come down. Like, and I think Musk described it as a baseball glove. But, but it, <laughs> I think it's brilliant. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So this net is three thousand six hundred square meters. I mean, where'd you get a net like that from? Yeah, that's not your average crab catcher, is it? That's pretty cool, though. I mean, they're making quite a bit of effort to catch these uh, fairings now. So they must be quite confident. They must be quite confident they're going to do it to spend that extra money. But it does look absolutely preposterous. I'm going to Google it as you speak. So it's quadruple the size of the previous net. Oh, my God. (laughs) That looks insane. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. It's very cool. Wow. I'll, I'll, I'll try and do a picture if I can use the picture on the blog. Yes, please. Uh, I'll tell you what, I was a bit, I was I kind of filled with a little bit of sadness and a little bit of optimism. Oh, what's up, Matt? The absolutely iconic Launch Complex 17, mm. the massive mobile gantries that are there, were blown up or imploded, as they say, uh, to topple them over and so that they can demolish the site ready for our mate Bob Richards oh, and, and, yes. and Moon Express. That is ace. But those those mobile gantries are 62 years old and have fired 325 missile and rocket launches. But some of the, some of the things that have gone, gone from, uh, from Complex 17 are actually amazing. For example, 48, 48 of the GPS satellites. You've had the Mars rovers, Pathfinder, Spirit and Opportunity all left from there. The Phoenix, Odyssey and Global Surveyor went from there. NASA's asteroid missions, Dawn and Near, went from there. Spitzer and Kepler Space Observatories 
Can you believe that? And the no way. good old Mercury Messenger. So God. all left, oh. all left from Complex Seventeen, and it is no more. And it's mainly because the Delta is sad. The Delta Two is no longer flying. So, but uh, yeah, so Moon Express are going to take it over. It's uh, hot and cold feelings, Matt. And they're going to be just working on lander development and flight test operations on the site. Well, it's great that it's being put to that use. So, yeah, it's the end of an era, basically. That That is the end of an era. At least it's not, you know, being sold as like a, a golf course for Trump. That would be horrible, wouldn't it? <laughs> don't, don't, uh, don't talk to me about Trump at the moment. He's causing oh, yeah. all sorts of problems on his little visit, visit to Britain. He's in our country, isn't he? Yeah, he is. It really smells. Oh. <laughs> T- talking of our country, um, mm. you know the uh, um, future relationship between United Kingdom and European Union presented by the Prime Minister uh, mm. to the European Union? Of course, there was quite a bit about space in there. Yes, yeah. there was. There was. I'll read one paragraph. The UK wants Galilei to be a core component of future security partnership. The UK's continued participation in Galileo is in the mutual interests of the UK and the EU. And it goes on. There's lots of lot. There's lots about Galileo. There's lots about trying to um, basically say how important UK's part is in the program and how it's not in anyone's interest to kick us out. Definitely not. No. And it says the UK is home to a world-leading space technology centre which has helped drive the EU's space programmes. This brings benefits to the UK and the EU. The value of the European space sector was estimated at 37 to $43 billion in 2014, representing 21% of the value of the global sector. The UK and the EU should develop new arrangements for cooperation on space that support European security and mutual prosperity. That's great. That is Ooh. great. Yeah, long may it continue. So the UK proposing the future relationship includes a space accord that provides the UK participation in EU strategic space projects and establishes channels for regular dialogue between UK and the EU on space policy. There you go. So quite a lot in there about space. And I suppose it's encouraging, but considering the EU's reaction to the paper so far, let's not get too excited. Yeah, I think we'll just wait and see what happens on that. You like this one, Jamie, because this uh, we're going to do an astronomy thing now. Good. This is glad you didn't say astrology. No, I'm going to do an astronomy thing. Uh, a very excellent. I think there's been a very important astronomy announcement that. Oh yeah. NASA's Fermi uh, space telescope has traced mm-hmm. the source of a cosmic neutrino. Back to a monster black hole. Now, Matt, yeah, for people less savvy than me, what's a cosmic neutrino? Uh, well, neutrinos are one of the uh, uh, well, fundamental particles in, in, in the standard model. And this neutrino, discovered by the scientists at IceCube, not the <sighs> yeah, not the not the not the wrapper, not the wrapper, uh, IceCube which is the Neutrino Observatory at the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station, which we'll mention that. Wow. We'll mention that a little bit later on with our next story. Uh, oh, we should. The Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory, which is a... Just go and see the pictures of that place because it's absolutely one of the most fascinating buildings and constructions you'll ever see. But, yes, yes. so they detected this... Uh, this neutrino, and it must have been travelling near the speed of light, and it's en- the energy that it was uh, carrying at that at that ridiculous velocity must have come from a very distant place, uh, and uh, it had travelled three point seven billion years at almost the speed Jeez. of light from this place. So that thing is thing about neutrinos is that they don't interact with normal matter at all, or very, very, very rarely. That's why they're so hard to detect. Um, Mm. But um, they managed to trace back where it's coming from and sort of the direction it was coming from, and then they used the Fermi Space Telescope um, to sort of go back and try and find out where it may have come from, and it, it, it literally revealed a gamma ray emission from an act, yeah. from an active galaxy, and when we say an active galaxy, it's really a supermassive black hole 
uh, with which is millions to billions the time times the sun's mass, and it's blasting jets of particles outwards that are d- literally directed directly at us. Luckily, it's not very near. It's 3.7 billion light years away. Otherwise, we'd be doomed. So this is, when we've talked about these before, this is known as in a blazar. So not a quasar. It is a quasar if you were looking at it from any other direction. But because we're right in the path of the jets, it's actually a blazar. Yeah, it's what really posh boys wear to school. Yeah, <laughs> no. yeah absolutely. I still do wear a blazer to work yeah you do yeah absolutely yeah the it was a guy called yasayuki tanaka at the hiroshima mm-hmm. university in japan he was the first person to associate this um new train trino with the blazer i mean that is a story and a half yeah no it, it's actually incredible uh and and what's amazing is that when fermi detected the uh the gamma rays it was actually one of the most active uh, gamma ray events that Fermi had seen in a decade. Jeez, God, that's nuts! They they see this little neutrino hitting the detector in the at the South Pole, and then they're able to use NASA's Fermi telescope to uh, trace it back, and they know where it came from. It's the first time that's ever been done, and this is sort of playing into this new whole new field of multi-messenger astronomy. Humans are clever, aren't they, Matt? Yeah, so that neutrino detection, gravitational wave detection, light. Oh, it's brilliant. Multi-messenger astronomy. And that's what they're going to call me. The (laughs) multi-messenger. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because I can talk to you in the street. I can talk to you via a podcast. Yeah. I can text you. Oh, big time. Big time. Smoke signals. Absolutely. Matt, I'd like to know what's happening on Mars. We've got a great interview today. We've got a really brilliant interview today. And actually, if you knew a little bit about Mars 500, you'd know that our guest was actually really special, Romain Chaz, who we were lucky enough to talk to. Um, But I just want to really just quickly go over the history of Mars analogue habitats. Yes, please. So, yeah, there's been quite a few of these. Uh, an an, an analogue, I suppose, is is like trying to simulate the physical and psychological environment that astronauts might face if they went to Mars. Yes. Uh, and it's really, really important. They've learnt a lot from these things, some surprising, some not so surprising. There's quite quite a few things that they have to sort of look at. How do, how do people react with each other when confined to different spaces? How do you cope this with... This is it. It was mainly... It was mainly about the mental health, wasn't it? Yeah, the, uh, Mars Five Hundred was, there, but there's but there's other ones. You know, they they built mm. uh, they built a Mars analog in Devon Island because it's at seventy five degrees north latitude, so it's got the same sort of solar radiance that uh, you get at oh. the Martian equator, and uh, right. you know, and there's other ones where they've sort of uh, replicated the Mars regolith and done tests with that. So you, some of them are like testing um, tools. But yes, Mars 500 was definitely to test a whole heap of things, but mainly, yeah, the human physiology uh, and how that it's kind of plays out. It's an incredible study, and there's quite a few um, nice little video clips. We should put some online. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, yeah, the Mars 500 mission was a psychosocial isolation experiment Uh and it and it ran from 2007 to 2011 uh, in Russia, and the European Space Agency and China were all involved. And that's the that's well, I look at that and think that's one of the great pities that America can't get involved in these things because China are involved in it. It's just uh, mm. a bit sad. But so uh, uh, sad. so Mars 500, I don't think is as famous as High Seas, mainly because of course the Americans rule the roost in terms of how they publicise space, but. Uh, it's the it's the longest one. Mars five hundred is easily the longest that anyone has been isolated for. So more than six thousand people applied from forty countries, and um, it ended up the third stage, which Romain was part of, was uh, five hundred and twenty days. Could you do it, Matt? Could you do it? I, I I really don't know. 
I'd have to go through the psychological experiments, but yeah, you would. Uh, three Russians, two Europeans, and one Chinese. And I spoke, mm. they all actually spoke to each other in English. Not a great communication between them. And it started on this, that one, 3rd of June 2010, ended 4th of November 2011. Incredible. And then they had to, and then they had to go into quarantine for four days as part of the simulation. And um, it was a great interview. Not many people can say they've done that. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, there there were some issues, but not as many. Apparently, there's no conflict situations, nothing requiring interference from ground services. I think that would have been different if they'd just bunged five regular people from the public in. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know what I mean? One article that came out directly after we did our interview, which is really brilliant is is an article by marina corin uh and it's in, entitled when a mars simulation goes wrong Ooh. so the last high seas uh mission high seas six by the way high seas four's high seas four is the second longest at 366 days but high seas six mm. was only four days in when uh someone got uh, a, a pretty bad electric shock and uh, yeah it all went wrong and they all had to be got out of there and the simulation ended so you've got all these people with visas and stuff like that that that, that suddenly they've they've like devoted all the, like this massive chunk of their life and 4 days in it it's all over but that story is it's like it's a nightmare and and that story is really worth reading so yeah try and find the article by Marina Corrin when a Mars simulation goes wrong it's really really cool but Shall we uh, listen to our interview with Romain? Let's have a listen. So here is Romain Chaz. Écoutez. We're joined on the podcast by Romain Charles, uh, who is an astronaut support engineer in Cologne uh, and was also a participant in Mars 500. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello, everybody. What we really wanted to hear about is the Mars 500 um project it's something that we've talked a lot about on the show these different mars analogs so can you tell us a little bit about your participation and a little bit about the project itself so the mars 100 mission was um, a scientific experiment which was organized some years ago now by the institute of biomedical problems in russia and the european space agency and later joined by the astronaut center of china and the role, um, the purpose of this uh, mission was to simulate a trip to Mars and to try to, ans um, to answer to one big question, which is, is man psychologically and physiologically able to endure the confinement of a trip to Mars? In your long stay, um, were, were there any moments that really were absolutely, you'd had enough? Luckily, I never had that kind of moments. Um, I mean, like in, in real life, we all had ups and downs during those uh, 520 year, days, sorry, which is roughly one year and a half. Um, but luckily, as a team, they were not at the same time, so we could help each other. And um, I never felt like I really wanted to get out of, of, this, uh, of these modules, of this mock-up of a spaceship in which we were living. Um, but funnily enough, I remember having dreams of um, exiting the modules, uh, sneaking out of the modules. Mm. I would dream that I would go out and just check my emails on the internet and uh, do that kind of thing. I can imagine. So, uh, and so for people listening, uh, everything was the same as if you would have been on Mars. So it, I, I believe it was a 25-minute delay in communicating with Earth. Um, is that right? And, it, and what were the other similarities? So, yeah, actually, we were simulating the trip to Mars. So this delay was incremental. We started with uh, the possibility to have phone calls with the Mission Control Center, which was actually a room just a few meters away from our modules. Um, but um, this um, direct communication lasted for like roughly one month and a half. And then uh, no more direct communications. Uh, we had a delay of one minute, two minutes, and it went up to 17 minutes one way. So that's 34, 34 minutes um, message at minimum. Um, so that was the, the main purpose. The other, um, the other things is that we're 
in the mock-up of this spaceship, which was actually a bit bigger than what we would expect for a trip to Mars, because as we were um, simulating this trip on Earth, we had gravity and we couldn't use the volume for um, going around in, in, the, in the spaceship. So they voluntarily um, increased a little bit the diameter and the size of those modules so that we could um, instead have a bit more space to walk around. It was still small, but uh, a bit bigger than what we would expect for uh, the first trip to Mars. And we know that you had uh, lots of different volunteers apply uh, from around the world. Uh, how, were they, how were they actually chosen? Yeah, I would say each country or each agency had its own um, selection process. So I can only talk about the European one. Uh, for the European crew members, uh, we were two on the final crew. And we went through a selection. We started a bit like an asteroid selection. So it was a call for candidates on the internet. And from what I understood, um, there were two calls overall for the mass admission. And total, it was 5,000 people applied. And, um, and then went through different um, steps, like a psychological, psychological interview, um, a thorough medical check. And um, in the end, we also had uh, the, the whole training period, which lasted for three months. And we were still four candidates on the European side, uh, knowing that there would be only two seats in the end for the Europeans. So even during the training, we're still um, several participants. And only toward the end uh, did they extract it from all the remaining participants, the final crew. Well, that's absolutely incredible. You must have you must have been so excited to join that crew. Can I? I mean, in in terms of the Mars analogs, you were talking earlier on about having dreams of escaping from the pod. Is do you have to report all those incidents, and do you have to keep a daily log of your psychological well being while you're in the simulation? Yes and no. We we had so our main uh, purpose, our main work inside those modules was to do science. It was a scientific experiment, and we had more than one hundred experiments to do, and a lot of them were looking at the psychological uh, side of this experiment. So um, our cognition, our group interactions, our mood, and and so for those experiments, we had a lot of questionnaires to answer to. And um, so they would ask if we sleep well, if um, if we talk with the others, they would ask well, plenty of normal, usual questions. And within those questions, uh, we, we had a few ones related to, to sleep, um, but actually there were not so many, or it was at least not... Um, coming back too often, asking about what we dreamt of. <laughs> I, I just had a, um, a kind of a journal. I would write on the computer what I felt on, on some days, and, uh, and I would write down those kind of dreams because I just, you know, we, we would talk about them the next day with the other guys and laugh about them, and I thought, yeah, that's actually something I want to remember. So I would write it down for myself. And, and was there anything of concern after the mission um, that that made you kind of think, or oh, you know, if 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 man was to go to to Mars, that we would have to really think about this. Was there anything of concern? Um, good question. Um, well, something I learned from Mars 100. I don't know if, uh, if you can put it in the concern uh, side, but um, before Mars 100, if there was a call for candidates for one wet trip to Mars. I would have seriously, seriously thought about participating or applying. Mm. After Mars 100, that's something I learned, at least for myself, that I really need the trip back, the, um, the hope, in a way, of a, a trip back uh, to, to give my all to, if there is any obstacle, any problem, I would just uh, go in and say, okay, we'll find a way. We, you know, we have something to come back to. And, um, and to stay full of energy to, to give my all. So that's something that I really discovered. I really didn't think about it before, before starting Mars 100. That is really, that's really interesting. That's a fantastic, it's a fantastic point. I've got one, uh, a further point that's kind of similar on the similar vein to that is, do you really think that it's, um, that it's a fair test in terms of uh, deep down you would have psychologically known that you were reasonably safe? 
Whereas people on a trip to Mars deep down would know that they really aren't safe, that they're only a couple of mishaps away from certain doom. Um, and they, and or did they try and add that element into the simulation? Because I think it's pretty important. Uh, it's a very important element, that's for sure. And um, indeed, we didn't have that risk uh, that uh, real astronauts going to the real Mars uh, would, would have. And so, of course, it's only a simulation, so it cannot uh, replicate all the sides of a real mission. Um, I come back to the main question, which was to, um, to know if man is able to endure the confinement of a trip to Mars. So all the experiments we had were really focused at the, the confinement. What does mm. being locked uh, in a can, in a sealed can mm. for one year and a half with no windows... Um, do to a group of people, and um, and it's really on this aspect that this experiment had uh, meaningful results. Uh, if you try to say that um, we can handle the risk of a trip to Mars based on what we lived in Mars 100, then it's out of the scope of this simulation. Right, and in, in, well, actually, that leads me on to my next question, which was. What sort of further work should be done to take these um, simulations forward? Because there's been quite a few. What what are the gaps in our knowledge at the moment? Um, I think that the the sample size of people who uh, went through confinement is still quite low. Uh, confinement or isolation too. Uh, if we talk about like um, Antarctic stations, for example, it's still quite low. So we cannot be sure that based on what was already done, uh, we can create the perfect um, group, the perfect crew for a real trip to Mars. So I think it's just a question of also repeating those experiments, repeating um, the, the confinement, maybe not one year and a half, maybe a bit shorter, um, to, to learn more about crew interactions, about um, how uh, the, the, the human factor uh, inside this uh, um, this spacecraft um, will behave in, in the future. So I think the human factor yeah. is still um, needs still some, some studies uh, to know more about that. It, other than that, the technical side, we, we are working on that with, thanks to the ISS, thanks to um, even to some um, uh, satellites and going further and further into space, spacecrafts. We learn more, but we still have a lot to learn. I wanted to ask about how you kept your moral up. Like if, you'd, if, if, you, if you guys were having a, a rough day, uh, maybe some of the experiments didn't work or something, was, was there anything that you would do to, to kind of lift the spirits? Were there certain games that you would play? I mean, would you play cards, etc.? Yes, definitely. Um, so, well, the first thing is uh, an advice that was given to me before I entered the, the modules. When I learned that I was selected to be part of this crew, I went to see um, a colleague uh, who was a, a former submariner and asked him, so, you know, you know about confinement and, uh, in submarines. Let, do you have any advices? And uh, he gave me one, which was always be busy. You should always have something to do, be it watching a video, listening to some music. You should always have something to do because... It's when you don't have anything that you just sit down and start to have dark thoughts and it becomes much harder. And so I entered the modules with this advice and I came with plenty of things I wanted to do. And every evening I would go to bed saying, ah, damn it, I didn't finish this and that and that. So tomorrow I really need to work harder to, uh, to, to get it done. Mm-hmm. And I think it helped. The other thing on the, the entertainment side, um, of course, we had, in the end, a lot of free time uh, because our days were divided in three, uh, eight hours of sleep, eight hours of work, and eight hours of free time. Um, when we wanted to spend that time together with the other guys, we could do some games. Um, it was rare for all of us to, to play a game all together. Uh, but we did once a uh, board game um, and we would do a bit more often some video games. Uh, I think our uh, preferred one to play all together was, uh, was definitely Counter-Strike. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but other than that, yeah, we, we had a, a few things. We would watch the videos together too. Um, some 
typical um, Russian movies, for example, and when we wanted to know a bit more about their uh, the culture, um, we even had some French movies. It was we we had good times um, together to share about things that we like. Amazing. Is there one experience that you would take out of Mars Five Hundred and say I learned so much from that that one experience? Yes, one of the experiments. Uh, my preferred experiment was an experiment called Pilot, where I was um, actually the purpose was to learn how to. Uh, pilot a spacecraft and dock it to a space station. So the whole purpose was to learn how to pilot. And um, and after some time, when we were when we had acquired those skills, we would uh, train and test our skills on the the real Soyuz simulator, which is used by the astronauts and, and cosmonauts. So that was uh, definitely a good one. For someone like you who's been through a similar experience to what it's like to go to Mars. Where do you stand on human exploration of Mars? Do you, are you a really strong proponent of it, or are you a dubious like some no, other people? I, I would really like to see it happen in the near future. I uh, I'm not so sure them. I would about it a bit there, but a one-way trip to Mars for me would be really difficult. Um, well, actually, there is um, a small story behind that. I don't know if we have a, a few minutes. Yeah, yeah. But uh, um, after Mars 100, I, I learned this from uh, from the experience that I that I didn't see it possible to have a one way trip to Mars. You really need the the way back to to uh, to give you all. And I had a strong belief about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, a few months later, with the other European um, candidate, uh, Diego Rubina. We were invited to Naples uh, for the International Astron- Astronautical um, Congress, mm-hmm. and and there there was an astronaut panel. So we went there with uh, with Diego, and on this panel was Buzz Aldrin, okay. and Diego was just poking me, saying, "Oh, let's go and talk to him." And uh, long story short, he managed to contact the, the manager of Buzz Aldrin, and we were invited to see him in a small room. And when we arrived there, he looked at us asking um, internally, who are those guys? So we introduced ourselves and said, oh, yeah, Master Hendren, I, I heard about that. Um, I, by the way, I had one question for you. So you can imagine that, like, wow, Buzz Aldrin has a question for us. <laughs> we were so excited. And said, yeah, I have this idea of a one-way trip to Mars. And, uh, and I was thinking, as you went through the whole trip uh, during your simulation, what do you think about this idea? So with my newly acquired knowledge, I told him, no, it's not possible, no, Mr. Andrew. Um, you really need the trip back, etc. So I explained my point. I can see that he's not so happy about uh, having his project uh, being um, looked at uh, like that. Mm-hmm. So he just stops for a few seconds and then tells me, you know, spending one year and a half in a can simulating a trip to Mars, not even going to space, I would have never imagined that anybody would be able to do such a thing. Yet, you just did it. And then I got his point. I said, okay, I am not able to go to Mars on a one-way trip. Maybe on, on the Earth, you have people who are able to, to give their own whatever the reason and, and stay um, stay on Mars on a one-way trip. So I know, personally, I am not able to do that. That's incredible. I love I love the fact that you uh, had the nerve just to go up to, to Buzz and say no, don't. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah, I just <laughs> want to know about the, the 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 future projects that you've got going on, and also if there's another uh, similar Mars 500 uh, experiment planned for for the uh, not too distant future. So as for my plans, um, at that time when I did Mars 100, my goal was to get closer to the space sector that was uh, making me dream when I was younger. And thanks to Mars 100, it happened. So today I'm a support engineer for um, astronaut support engineer here in Cologne. And that's my job. I, you know, I have to facilitate the daily life of the astronauts. So I'm continuing uh uh, doing that, uh, and and my job has you know for my job I have to go to Baikonur each time that there is a launch. So you can imagine for somebody who loves space how hard this must be. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough work, <laughs> indeed. 
Um, but otherwise, for um, um, analog studies like Mars 100, there are quite a lot going on, and there are a lot of projects that are being um, um, done all around the world. So I know that inside the same modules as Mars 100, for example, there is a new set of uh, confinement studies which uh, is being started. This uh, project uh, is called Sirius, like the, the, like the star, Mm. and um, should um, end with a one-year confinement study in 2020. Uh, on this one, the ESA is not participating, so there will not be a European candidate inside the modules, uh, most likely, or unfortunately. Uh, but I know that um, the, the Russian side and the, the American side are participating in it. Well, if you ever need, if you ever need our applications to be volunteers, Roman, then please let us know. <laughs> <laughs> no problem, I will take that. <laughs> yeah, we, we would certainly have some stories to tell once we came out. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. I'm sure loads of people have loads more questions. I think Mars 500 is the daddy of all the uh, Mars analogues, if, I, if I'm when I'm looking at it, and I, and I think it's amazing that you, you were one of the people that did it. Thank, thank you very much for joining us on the show. Well, thank you, and um, it's always a real pleasure to, uh, to talk about space with um, people who are enthusiastic about it. So thanks for this opportunity. Oh, thank you. The pleasure's ours. Thanks very much for doing it. I really enjoyed that interview, Jamie. Super interesting, wasn't it? Yeah. I feel as though there's more to know in that story. Agreed. Uh, I think it'd be worth... I think that there must be a good documentary in it. You would have thought so. Mm. Anyway, Jamie, have you got me a space fact? Are you ready for this? I am ready for it. Matt, water is known to put out fires but in space, it can actually start them. What? Yeah. Scientists in 2014 experimented with a type of water known as supercritical. That, I'm going to be supercritical at the end of this. Well, <laughs> I'll go on. Okay, sorry. That's when water is compressed to a pressure of 217 atmospheres and heated up above 373 degrees Celsius when that is mixed with organic material, it creates a liquid-like gas that creates the same effect of burning without a flame. Astronauts often use this as a means to get rid of waste. Mm. Are you going to shoot me down now, Matt? I, I'm not. I don't, I don't know anything about supercritical fluids. Well, it's about time you learned something about space, for God's sake, Matt. Yeah, I, I, I do like it. Is Is... Um... Are uh, is the liquids at hydrothermal vents supercritical? Oh, I don't know, but that's a good question. But no, I'm not going to be supercritical about about that, Jamie. I like it. No, I like Thanks. it. Yeah, that's good. Well, if anyone knows any more I, details, I'm going to go. Now you've told me this, I'm going to go away and read more about it and how I'd ast- like you to how astronauts use supercritical water. There you go. I'm glad I've inflamed your. It flamed my interest. Yes, yes, not not your knowledge. It's too early, Matt, for this. Jamie, do you know who I want to? <laughs> do you know who I want to thank? Who? I want to thank our patrons. Oh, I do too. Because quite seriously, this week they've all that's kept me going. <laughs> oh, Matt, we're all with you, ah. the patrons, the listeners. Hey, Matt. Yeah. If I if I enjoy the interplanetary podcast, mm-hmm. what's a few things I can do? You can I think I think you just run off to interplanetary.org.uk, leave us a nice review on iTunes. I think I think I think that'd be really lovely. And if you're really feeling and, and genuinely, if it's of any financial burden whatsoever, don't do this. But if it if it's literally it really won't mean it won't touch the sides then we have no adverts and we'll never have adverts on this show because we we want our opinions to be fact-based and truthful and how can you trust us if we have exactly. you know, yeah, so so we that's it it's, per, it's it's completely funded by patrons so if if you if you can it'd be absolutely awesome and and the better our patrons the bigger that grows the better this show will be undoubtedly because we'll have just more and time boy. Does it need to get better? It does need to get better, you've got to admit. So <laughs> if you think this show needs to get better, <laughs> become a patron. Then please, become a patron. Come on. Uh, thank patron. you, guys. Please keep submitting your questions, comments, thoughts, 
uh, to our Twitter or Facebook or Instagram page. It's amazing. Actually, I did. I did have a question that did come up uh, via Twitter. Oh yeah, yeah. It was um, you know the, the 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 football team that was stuck in the cave. Yeah, and you know Elon Musk's bizarre submarine thing yes which, which yes. was bizarre because it he kind of mixed it up with like a, an advert for his teslas or something it was like really weird right. but anyway mm. uh, let's let's just assume he did it for the best intentions good elon yes well of course and he built this uh he, he was in the middle of building a little submarine which yes. he was saying was made out of the lox injector from the uh, falcon 9 uh-huh. Uh one of the one of the readers sort of said, well this the the the, the press had said that this mini sub was made from Kevlar uh and but the but the parts that part of the Falcon 9 was made from aluminium. Now, oh. I think and my answer to them was that the the second iteration that Elon Musk was talking about was a Kevlar submarine uh um, but then he then had a third iteration where he realised he could use this part of the Falcon Nine, which is indeed uh, high grade aluminium. So, um, yes. uh, so am I right about that, or, or or am I wrong? Is there is is that part actually? Is there a Kevlar part of that point uh, of that part, and and was that what he was thinking of originally? So, if anyone knows the answer to that, because anyone I, knows, I couldn't find please that. Get I, couldn't in touch. Find, I couldn't find that online. So, yes. Questions like that, we love them, and we can always pose them out to the uh, to the listeners. Absolutely, do love them, and what a great story! So great that they're all safe and well, yes, and back with their families. Absolutely, Amon Jamie. Yeah, you've been listening to the Interplanetary Podcast, putting the Ace back into space. Well, I thought I had been. It's a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) Anyway, go out there and play in the sun. Enjoy yourself. Stay safe. See you, podcasts. Goodbye. Bye-bye. 